want to do? Say hi. Good morning. Welcome to Northgate Baptist Church this morning. My name is Garrett. I'm the youth pastor here, and this is Dylan. <laughs> he's, he's feeling a little shy this morning. Uh, I, yeah, which is irregular, but uh, still kind of cute, I suppose. Um, so, if it is uh, if it's your first time here or not, and uh, you just want to connect or, or get some information or whatever. There's a couple ways to do it. There's the old-fashioned way, which is just you just you talk to someone about it, just ask somebody your question, whatever, introduce yourself. There's the other old-fashioned way, where I know some of the pews have like paper connect cards um, in that pocket right in front of you. You can fill that out. And then there's the other way where uh, you can go to our website, www.northgatebaptist.ca, and there's a connect card on the website. And you can also... If you've got a phone with a camera on it, you can scan the back. There's a QR code at the back of the bulletin, and that will take you to that same form. Uh, we've got a couple other things going on. Uh, if you turn to the page in your bulletin that has all the pictures on it, uh, we're going to follow along. Dill's going to lead us in the announcement sing-along this morning. There you go, bud. Okay. In the top right corner of that page... We've got the Family Matters Business Meeting. It's June 15th at 7 p.m. Uh, there's online voting, so contact the office to get that set up for yourself. The picture next to that, the nice colorful green one, June 26th, there's the Church Family Picnic. Uh, please sign up. You can contact the office at uh, office at northgatebaptist.ca. And uh, I'm not sure if there's any other information on that. Salad or dessert. And yeah, okay, you can sign up to bring whatever. It's a potluck-style picnic. I believe there will be food there as well, so you don't have to bring something, but please sign up and uh, bless others with your food. All right, the announcement coming next is we're welcoming Phil Pocock. He's joined us as our audiovisual staff member. And next to that, we've got the colorful blue announcement. VBS is coming up. Sign-up sheets are in the foyer. You can use the QR code on that picture in the bulletin. You can visit the website. Registration is due June 30th. If you want to join VBS this summer, June 30th is the last day you can sign up. So get it done before that, probably. Congratulations to Carly and Josiah. Uh, they gave birth to twins, what was it, last week? To uh, Naomi Grace and Laura Ray. Hmm. Nice. Congratulations, guys. I don't know if they're watching. They're definitely not here. But... Yeah, congratulations, guys. That's, that's awesome. We're all excited and scared for you. Um, the bottom right corner, the baby bottle campaign, it's ending soon. On uh, June 19th is the last day. So you can scan the QR code to get more information on that. And uh, our condolences to the family of Johnson Wong. I know uh, he hasn't been around in a while, but many of you uh, did know him, so please keep uh, the family in your prayers. And there's a memorial service um, on June 17th at Connolly McKinley. 
And uh, that's all for announcements. Um, I'll pray and we'll get moving. And, oh, no. And then, uh, uh-oh, that's right. <laughs> and then uh, the kids will be dismissed for Kingdom Kids. <laughs> God, we, uh, we thank you for... Um, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can meet together. And uh, yeah, God, for everything that's taking place, uh, for all the resources you've, you've blessed us with as a congregation, as a church, God, I pray that we can um, use them to glorify you, and God, and to, to seek uh, what, you are, what you are doing amongst us. God, we pray as we hear from your word this morning that uh, it would penetrate our hearts and our minds, that it would transform us, and, uh, and challenge us to make life changes, God. Transform us from the inside out. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Children are dismissed to Kingdom Kids in the Fellowship Hall. Well, good morning. I hope you're here and you're excited to spend some time uh, examining the Word of God, because, I mean, that's what we love to do here. Uh, and for those who are wondering, where are we going to go after we finish the book of 1 John last week? Where are we going to go today? Let me answer that question by asking you to turn with me to the book of Acts. Um, uh, as some of you may remember, we actually began studying the book of Acts last summer. Uh, you know, Acts is a very big book. Uh, and it's maybe just a little bit more digestible to break it up into some smaller sections and look at it sort of uh, over a longer length of time. And that's really what we're doing. Uh, and that means we're jumping back uh, to look at the book of Acts once again at Acts chapter 8 uh, this morning as we're going to look at verses 1 to 8. But before we jump right back in, it kind of makes sense to just take a few minutes just to remember uh, where we have been uh, coming to this this passage in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts, it really begins, uh, with the re- well, begins with the resurrected Jesus. Uh, you can almost think of the book of Acts as the Gospel of Luke Part 2, because Luke is author, uh, the author of both of those books. And Acts, the book of Acts really begins where the Gospel of Luke ends, uh, with the resurrected Lord Jesus addressing his followers for one last time before his ascension up into heaven. Uh, that's where Luke ends. That's where Acts begins. And Jesus... When he, when he gathers his disciples right at the beginning of Acts, uh, there's this verse in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which I think could really be thought of as not just the theme verse for the book of Acts, but really almost as a summary of the book itself, uh, where Jesus says to his followers in Acts 1, verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Honestly, the rest of the book of Acts is just that verse playing out as the disciples just go and tell people about Jesus. And the church grows and the church spreads and the gospel is taken really to the ends of the earth. Um, Then once Jesus spoke those words to to his uh, followers, Jesus ascends up into heaven. Um, From there, the disciples, they return to Jerusalem where they gather together. There's about 120 of them. while they're there, they replace Judas Iscariot as, as one of the twelve. They appoint Matthias to take his place. And, and then they really just wait. Um, they wait. Just Jesus told them to wait. They wait until the day of Pentecost. And then the Holy Spirit comes in power. 
And when the Holy Spirit has come, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, he preaches this amazing sermon. And after, you know, what we would call probably an altar call, suddenly the church in Jerusalem adds 3,000 souls to their number in just about one day. And it's an amazing time for the church. I mean, you'd almost say all seems happy kind of thing. Because Acts 2 uh, tells us, Acts 2, beginning of verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the needs of the proceeds to all uh, as had any need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. And from there, you know, the apostles just, they continued to preach. And the Lord, we're told, added to their numbers. And the apostles, you know, they performed miracles and there were healings. And the Lord added to their numbers. And in time, Peter and John and even were arrested and put on trial, and James was even killed. And yet, even still, the Lord added to their numbers. Ananias and Sapphira, you know, where they were struck dead in the middle of a church meeting because they had tested the Holy Spirit. And even then, the Lord added to their number. After that, there were more arrests of the leaders of the church. And, you know, they were being dragged into court. There's more warnings not to preach in Jesus' name, which they soundly ignored. And still, the church in Jerusalem just continued to grow. In fact, it grew to the point where they needed actually some extra help with some practical needs that arose among the people. So they appointed seven servants. Uh, They are all Hebrew men with Hellenistic ties, all men full of the Holy Spirit. And they appointed them to minister to the widows uh, just in very practical ways so that the apostles wouldn't have to be disturbed from their work of preaching the word. And that's actually what takes us all the way to chapter 6 of the book of Acts and in chapter 6, we meet this, a man named Stephen, uh, because Stephen was actually one of those seven servants that the church appointed to, to help look after those practical needs. But when Stephen wasn't sort of helping out in church, we're told he was out in the community preaching the gospel and telling other people about Jesus. And that's actually where the real trouble begins. As Stephen's very powerful preaching earned him some very powerful enemies who looked to discredit him. A lot of people not happy uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached. So they seized him. Uh, They dragged him off to stand trial before the council, the Sanhedrin, where they called in false witnesses to testify against him, and they charged him with blasphemy and, and all of that stuff. And I think what sort of stands out most to me in that is that it's almost exactly the same thing they did to Jesus. You know, it's almost as if the Pharisees lacked imagination in how to get rid of people. But it was the same lies. It was the same calling in false witnesses, the same unproven charges, the same biased judges. It's, it's crazy. And yet Stephen, he wasn't about to, you know, be intimidated. He wasn't going to go down without a fight. And all of Acts chapter 7 records a speech that Stephen gives in his defense. And he begins with, He begins with a history lesson of the Jewish people. He goes right back to sort of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he talks about Joseph, and he talks about Moses. He talks about even King David and King Solomon. And he reminds his listeners of a very important truth. Because he reminds them that God desired 
to make them a people of his own. That God sought them out. That God acted on their behalf. That God delivered them from bondage. That he answered their calls for help. And that he revealed himself to them as their God. And more than just sort of offering them empty religion or a fancy temple that they could go to for sacrifices, he reminded them that God, in all of this, God wanted to be in a relationship with them. That was the heart of God. And it's a beautiful thought. And yet then Stephen also tells us that more often than not, those same people of God responded instead of opening their hearts, but by hardening their hearts. They responded by resisting the Holy Spirit. They responded by rejecting the servants that God had sent into their midst until the point where they had rejected the ultimate servant that God had sent, Jesus Christ himself, who was God in the flesh. And just listen to sort of Stephen's closing, some of his closing words in Acts chapter 7, beginning of verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which, is, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Now, that's not gentle language. That's not sort of persuasive arguments. Uh, but at this point, wouldn't it be nice if the Bible said something like, you know, his words won them over, their hearts became, became repentant, and the truth set them free. But the reality is Stephen's words, it was like pouring gasoline on an already raging fire. Because listen to the reaction. In Acts 7, verse 54, it says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at his right hand. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. And they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. All the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And that's sort of the record of the life and death of Stephen. That's a bit of an extended introduction for us here this morning, but it all leads us to the place where our passage begins. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. If you'd like to follow along with me as I read, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. 
When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with loud voices came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And that begins sort of what is a new chapter for the church. As they enter into this time of great persecution and suffering under the leadership of a man named Saul. Let's pray as we begin. Father God, um, yeah, Lord, just be with us once again as we open your word. We acknowledge our need of you and your Holy Spirit um, to help open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to receive it. I pray that, Lord, you would speak to us today. Uh, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, that, Lord, this would be truth um, that finds a place in our hearts. Uh, truth that is not just heard, but truth that is lived out. Uh, Lord, as we discuss what is a very hard topic, which is the topic of suffering, that all of us seem to, to go through at one point or another. So, Lord, send your Holy Spirit, and may you be greatly glorified in what is done here this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it, I think it's been said very rightly that there are two things in life that can deeply touch the human heart. The first is great beauty, and the second is great pain. And I, as I said, I think there's a lot of truth in that statement because, as many of us know, suffering can speak to our hearts, affect our hearts in a way that nothing else really can. And even though it sort of lacks grammar and punctuation, the language of suffering is well understood by so many of us. When I was in seminary, I had a chance to hear about a young man named Scott. And Scott had graduated just a few years before I began attending. And Scott's wife, Karen, who we met at school, shared Scott's passion to be a missionary. So after graduation, Scott and Karen, they began together as a, as a couple looking for a missionary position. And after much prayer, they really felt God calling them to go to the Philippines. So they did all those things missionaries do. They, you know, they began learning the language. They began learning the customs in order to be able to, to really minister to the people. Their life was sort of... It's in one of those places where your life just feels really like they're on track. And then after some time, there's good news. In fact, great news because Karen was pregnant with their first child, and things were going so well. I mean, things couldn't be better. But then one day, I think he was playing basketball. Scott began to notice just a pain in his knee. Got it checked out, and it was diagnosed as being cancer. Devastated, this young man and his wife, who had been felt so called by God into missions, now saw sort of their dreams unraveling. That cancer was aggressive. When they operated, Scott lost his whole leg and part of his hip. And doctors hoped for the best, but they received only the worst news. That the cancer had spread throughout other parts of his body as well. So they treated him with chemotherapy. You know, the medicine, that's awful stuff. It caused him to develop sores in his mouth so severe, he couldn't even swallow water because it was so painful. And the doctors told him it's only a matter of time. But people prayed. And you know what? Things began to, getting, to turn around. Scott actually started getting better, and the doctors risked more surgery. They removed a lung, and they cleaned out other places where the cancer had been. And suddenly it seemed as Scott was getting better. He was beginning to win the battle for his life. 
And his family rejoiced. The churches that were praying for him rejoiced. All the good news. But then one day, just around Christmas, almost out of the blue, we got the news that Scott had died. It's just one of those things. A complication from surgery. He contracted pneumonia. And in his weakened condition, he just, he didn't have the strength left to fight off that infection. And a young man, a good man, was dead. And his young wife and daughter were left alone behind to mourn. And it's a, it's, it's the, it's a story you hate to hear. It's the kind of thing I think we hear about too often. When we hear about such pain sneaking into a person's life. And you know, even without asking, I know that suffering is something that every single person here has in common in one form or another. In fact, I've said this before, but I think one of the things that first surprised me most when I went into ministry, when I became a pastor, was how when people would start to come to you as a pastor and they began to open up their lives and just really talk to you about what's going on, I think what surprised me the most was the great amount of pain that so many people are carrying around in their lives on a daily basis. Pain that is it's not obvious on the surface, but it's pain that is still so very deep. I actually heard it said, in every pew there is a broken heart. Speak often on suffering and you will never lack a congregation. And with every year that passes in ministry, I feel like that is more and more true. This morning as we come to our passage found in the book of Acts, we are again confronted with that truth. Because that's where the church was at. Stephen, one of their best and brightest leaders, a young man, a good man, was now dead. In fact, he wasn't just dead, he was murdered by a mob, an angry mob of men who refused to hear the truth. And from there, that anger and violence spread to the point where anyone in the church was now at risk of being next. As we read about it in Acts 1, beginning of verse 1, it said, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And just think about how the church must have felt in that moment. Because as you heard, this this was a church that was being faithful. You heard about it. They were caring for people. They were praying for people. They were sharing with one another. They were caring for the poor and the needing. They were helping and they were healing and they were sharing the good news about Jesus. And they were speaking truth and they were refusing to compromise. And the church was growing and people were being saved. In short, they were doing everything right. And yet the result still led them to suffering. In fact, the Bible says great persecution. And that's not an understatement. I mean, men were breaking into their meetings and dragging them off to put them into prison, to be tortured. 
So I think there were probably a lot of people at that time asking the questions. Like, what's going on here? Like, why, why is God letting this happen? Or even very simply, God, why? You know, as people who believe in the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the, the powerfulness of God, when pain and suffering and trials enter into our lives, we can ask those kinds of questions. We ask, like, really, God? I mean, there was no other way this could have happened. There's no easier path that, that could have been taken. I mean, really, God, your divine plan for my life really has me coming to this place and facing these struggles and going through this suffering and enduring this pain or losing that loved one. And I think maybe even harder still, as often as we maybe ask those kinds of questions, we don't really get any specific answers when we ask the question, why? And the truth is we may never know the reasons for why specific things happen on this side of eternity. But if you're in that place this morning, I do want to offer you this because there are two important truths we learn about suffering from our passage this morning. And these are truths we need to hold on to. And the first lesson about suffering is that when we go through suffering, suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't care. Uh, look at Acts chapter 2. It says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation for him. I think I quoted the wrong verse. God, yeah. That's the NIV version, which I actually I was, I was comparing. I actually prefer that version, where it says, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But when you hear that, that, that description, that devout men, or, or that phrase, godly men, what I want you to see there is that you get the sense that these were godly men because they had a heart after God. They were godly men because their hearts rejoiced in the things that God rejoices in and their hearts were broken by the things that break God's heart. And in response to Stephen's death, we're told these godly men, they mourned deeply for him. They made great lamentation. Because the heart of God wept at the loss of this man, right alongside all the other believers. And you know, it didn't just stop with Stephen. That, that suffering spread. Verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now understand that when it says he was ravaging the church, that he wasn't firebombing a building. You know, the church was not a building. The church was not a nonprofit entity created by a legal constitution. The church was people. It was the men and women of God. And people are what matter to God. God's not casual about human life. He's not flippant about allowing suffering and pain in our life. God doesn't, he doesn't take any delight when his children are in pain. But he mourns with us and he grieves with us. You know, just like Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus, we can know that God understands our sorrow and he enters into our suffering and our loss with us and he weeps. His heart is broken, just like ours is. Because you know what? Jesus knows what suffering is like. You know, the Bible reminds us that Jesus himself was called a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. 
We serve a God who knows what it is like to endure pain and sorrow because he endured that suffering for us. And we should take comfort in that because pain is going to come. And it's so good to know that we're not alone. Chuck Swindoll reminds us that if you're experiencing trials, you're the rule, not the exception. They may be physical, emotional, financial, or spiritual. They may slip in unexpectedly and knock you on the door of your business, your church, or your home. They may arrive at any time or in any season. They may come suddenly. They may be prolonged. They can be public or private. They can be directly related to your own sin, the sin of others, or not related to sin at all. But they all hurt and they all bruise. And then he says, we find our solution in God's Son, Jesus Christ, who endured the bruising, the hate, and the sin of man. In him, we do not find relief from our trials, but the strength to endure them, that we might be known as one approved by God. Because God meets us at our point of deepest need. Because God's promise to his people is that he will be with us in our sorrow. Hebrews 13.10, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus' promise is that he will be with us always. So we do not suffer alone because God is with us and God cares for his people. But even more than just comfort from God's presence, comes our second lesson in our sorrow. And that lesson is that God can actually use our pain for a higher purpose. As we look at verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with loud voices, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in the city. So really what's happening here is that these religious leaders in Jerusalem thought, you know what, we can eliminate the problem we're having with this church by killing Stephen and just violently cracking down on these believers. Because they probably thought the church would just sort of crumble and collapse you know, under the pressure that they were putting on it. But the reality of what happened was just the opposite. You see, when Stephen was killed and Saul began persecuting believers, instead of giving up and giving in, the believers actually picked up and they left Jerusalem. But as they left Jerusalem, they took the message of the gospel with them. And they preached that message everywhere that they went. So Stephen's death meant that suddenly... There are now thousands of believers traveling throughout the world preaching Christ everywhere they went. That, mean, that means that that suffering they experienced in Jerusalem actually led to joy in all of those other places where the gospel was now being proclaimed. And you know, in hindsight, I look at this passage here. In hindsight, this may be one of the most important steps the church ever took to begin reaching a lost world with the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. God uses Stephen's death and the persecution that followed it to actually do something incredible. Something that likely wouldn't have happened if the church had remained comfortable and safe in Jerusalem. 
And I'll admit that I think during COVID, these were some of the verses I held closest to my heart. Because, you know, pre-COVID, our church was doing well. You know, we were growing. There were new faces coming. There was optimism about all that God was doing. And then just out of the blue, COVID came and shut it all down. And you're like, why, God? Things are, things are so good. Why would you do that? Why this? Why now? And our church wasn't alone. And yet, because of COVID, it forced us to try new things. Forced us to think about church in new ways. It reminded us, I think in a very powerful way, that the church was not a building or a place that we go on Sunday mornings. That the church is actually who we are as the people of God. And it really led us to new opportunities. One thing is it forced us to go online. And you know, that's one of the places where we are growing the fastest as a church. Most of the new people who are coming to our church now started by saying, we, we began watching you online. It was a new opportunity. And that doesn't mean that those were easy times. COVID was awful. But looking back, you can still see that God was at work doing a new thing in our church because of some of that pain we had to go through. And I think as believers, we can, just, we can take assurance that in each of our lives, God is at work in our pain. And that he can do amazing things as we go through those, those times of suffering. You know, sometimes we are given painful experiences to open new doors of opportunity, new doors of ministry. Sometimes we are given trials to take us to new depths in our relationship with God. And sometimes God just allows us to be broken because in our brokenness, he can remake us into something beautiful. Because there are lessons that only suffering can teach us and there are things in our lives that only suffering can accomplish. And that's actually what gives understanding to some of Paul's words in Romans 5. Where he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering." knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And the words of James in James chapter 1, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Pain and suffering are very real in our lives. And they are complex and they are complicated. And there are times when we have no good answers or reasons about why we're going through them. And you know, one thing I don't want this sermon to be is like, It's like if God gives you lemons, make lemonade kind of sermon. I don't want to come off as being trite or dismiss something. Suffering is something very minor that we have to go through. But the Bible is so clear that suffering is one of the ways that God works most powerfully in our lives as believers. So as we close, I want to just give you five things, uh, five truths for you, you to hold on to when you or someone you love is going through hard times. And we're pretty tight for time here, so um, they're going to be pretty quick. But the first thing I want you to remember is 
don't let your suffering affect how you think about yourself or how you think about God. Or another way of saying it, don't allow your suffering to change what you believe is true. Because sometimes when we suffer, we want to, you know, we want to blame ourselves. We want to look at ourselves to see what we did wrong, or even worse, we want to define ourselves by our suffering. And in the same way, sometimes when we suffer, we think that our suffering must define God. That if I'm going through this, that must mean God doesn't care or that he's indifferent. But here, this, none of our experiences, even in suffering, can change the truth or the character of who God is. God is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He is a God of compassion. He is a God who is good, and he is a God who is great. And suffering cannot change that truth. And in the same way, suffering also does not change the truth about you, that you are a child of God, and that you are loved by God, and that you are forgiven of your sins because of Jesus Christ. And those things are still true, even as we go through our times of suffering. Remind yourselves of that truth when sorrow and pain may begin to have you doubt it. And the next application I would have for you this morning that flows out of this passage, a very practical one is, Remember the persecuted church. You know, somewhere in the world still, right now, you can be sure someone is being threatened and, or tortured or put to death simply because they are a Christian. There are more than 245 million Christians in over 60 nations that face persecution every day. There's a report released actually not too long ago commissioned by the British Foreign Secretary that called persecution of Christians in the Middle East close to genocide. And you don't hear about a, a lot on the news. But as Christians today, they're still the most persecuted group in the world. Remember the persecuted church. Pray for the persecuted church. And if you can, find ways to advocate for the persecuted church. Which also brings us to this point, number three, which is simply, as we remember the persecuted church, remember those who are suffering around you right now as well. Find ways to walk beside those who are hurting in your life. You know, there's a great saying that goes, you may quickly forget the people you laugh with, but you never forget the people with whom you weep. You know, few things in our lives will ever be as significant as bringing comfort and compassion to someone who's in pain to offer comfort to those around you. That's what we should be doing. That's what, we, that's what the church is all about. God gives us a church so that we can be there for one another, to encourage each other and lift each other up and edify each other in those difficult times. And I also add a word here to, to those of you who are suffering. Because you need to let others know. Be honest about your pain so that you can let others help. You know, many of us have gotten really good at hiding and camouflaging our pain. We're really good at putting on a brave face. So good that many people around us don't even know. But you know, if we're not honest with others about our pain, we only prolong the help and the healing that we might receive through the help of others. Now, the fourth piece of advice I would have for you this morning is make sure you respond in the middle of suffering with obedience. Because, you know, I've seen people react to troubles in their lives in a lot of different ways. Um, sometimes people become complainers. Sometimes they get angry. Sometimes they get confused. Sometimes they can be just bitter. Sometimes they can just kind of 
surrender and give up. Shut down. But you know, the Bible tells us, 1 Peter 4, verse 19, says, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. When suffering comes, continue to do good. Continue to be obedient to God. You know, when hard times threaten you, be obedient. When people insult you, continue to be obedient. When life is easy, be obedient. When life is hard, be obedient. When it costs you everything, we should still be obedient. And we see that response in the response of Philip in our passage. You know, and we'll see this later in the weeks ahead as we continue to look at him. But, you know, when suffering came, Philip and the others in the church who scattered, they just continued to do what God called his people to do. Even though they were suffering, they continued to share the gospel with other people. They were called to be witnesses and they continued to be witnesses, even though they had left so much behind. Which brings us to our final application. And I've spoken to you about this before, but it's a reminder that no talk of suffering is complete without the reminder that it is only temporary. Remember that in Christ, suffering in your life will never have the final and eternal say. Just listen to the words of Revelation 21. That said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away from their eyes every tear. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. It's a reminder that our God is greater than our disappointments. He's greater than our hurt. He's greater than our suffering. And that he offers us a hope that never fails. In your great suffering. Make sure you never lose sight of your great hope. So what burdens are you carrying with you this morning? What hurts may have left the wound? What sorrows are lingering? What's the pain that's keeping you up at night? Well, remember that God is with you in the midst of all of those things. And remember that God can use it in your life to accomplish more than you can ever imagine. And even though we may not understand what God is up to, we can still take comfort from his presence. We can still hold on to the promises of his word. We can still know that God is faithful. So even when we face trials, even when we go through suffering, even in one of those places where it feels like your dreams have crumbled, even then Christ makes all the difference and continues to be our hope. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we read these words, Lord, it's just such a reminder that suffering is something that is so real in so many of our lives. Something that each and every one of us is going to go through at some point or another. And yet, Lord, how important it is to remember that you too suffered. That you suffered on the cross and that you suffered without mercy so that we as your people could find mercy when we suffer. 
And no, we know that, Lord, our pain is never empty. Because that, Lord, you can use our pain, you can use the trials we're going through to produce growth in our life, to produce new opportunities for ministry in our life. And that, Lord, we know that in our pain, we also never suffer alone. Because, Lord, you enter into that pain with us. You walk with us in those pain. That, Lord, you weep with us when we weep. You grieve with us when we grieve. And that, Lord, you are our strength and our stronghold in all of those difficult times. And, Lord, I pray that we would remember that truth. And that when suffering comes, we would not doubt it. But, Lord, we would take a stand upon it. Stand upon your promises. Stand upon your character. Stand, stand upon your love. Stand upon your goodness. And remind ourselves that those things are still true. There are still things we build our life upon, even when suffering can be can blind us to some of those things. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is in that place, I pray that you would be close to them. Lord, I pray that you would help them to be open with others about their pain so that they could find people who could come alongside them and walk with them as well. Because Lord, we are the church body. We're the body of Christ. And Lord, you call us to be there in that way for one another. And Lord, in the end, Lord, we also thank you for our hope. And that reminder that, Lord, suffering is it's not eternal. It is not the final word. And that, Lord, in the end, you will make all things right. You will wipe every tear from our eye. And that, Lord, yeah, it's, it's a thing of this world, but, Lord, you are greater uh, than even our pain. And, Lord, we thank you for this message. In Jesus' name, amen.